Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your presence with us today. We trust you, Lord. We pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we depend on you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're looking at 2 Peter. And within a year or so of writing this letter, Peter is going to be crucified upside down in Rome during the first great persecution of the Christians under the emperor Nero. And Peter sees it coming. And so he writes two letters to the same group of people, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, dealing with this persecution that he feels in the air and sees around him on its way. And the letters deal with what it looks like for the church to live in a pagan culture that hates Christ and especially hates the moral teachings of the church because it finds those teachings to be arbitrary, oppressive, finds them to interfere with the expression of their desires and therefore to interfere with living full and free lives. So both letters are about this same subject, but 1 Peter addresses the interaction between the church and the surrounding pagan culture. And the message of 1 Peter is basically, you will very likely suffer for living lives of holiness and bearing witness to God's moral law in a society that rejects that moral law But if you suffer, so be it. If you suffer for being good, so be it. You cannot let the threat of suffering cause you to compromise your holiness or your witness to the truth. So that's 1 Peter. And 2 Peter, rather than talking about the confrontation between the church and the broader culture, talks about false teachers within the church. False teachers who do the exact thing that Peter warns in 1 Peter not to do. These are people who are saying that God is perfectly fine with Christians um, engaging in all the various practices um, that the pagans around them are engaging in. And the types of sensual practices that these pagans were engaging in at the time were very, very similar to what we see around us today. So what the false teachers were offering is a certain kind of freedom a freedom to go along with the pagan culture on these issues. And what Peter offers in 2 Peter as a response to that is an analysis of freedom. He explains the logic of freedom, how freedom works. And it's a timely analysis because we live in a culture today that's very similar to um, the pagan culture of Rome in some ways, especially on these issues of sensuality um, in men and women and marriage. And so the analysis that Peter gives is the timely one for us today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the false teaching that the false teachers were promoting about freedom. And we're going to ask, um, first of all, why is this freedom that they're promoting so appealing to people? 
And there's an obvious reason that it's appealing, but there's also a slightly less obvious reason that, appealing, that it's appealing. Then we're gonna say, well, okay, but what's wrong with this freedom? Why isn't this view of freedom really even worthy of the name freedom? And finally, we'll look at the true freedom that Peter wants to promote, um, and we're going to see that the freedom that's worth that lofty name, freedom, is the freedom to become what we were made to be. So, first let's talk about the false freedom that these false teachers are putting forward and why it's appealing. And to do that, we wanna first think about how freedom works. And I mean that in this way. Anytime you're talking about any idea of freedom, you have to recognize that that idea of freedom will have three components to it. It's always the freedom of some being from some obstacle to do or be something. So to give an unrelated example, you could talk about the freedom of a polar bear from captivity in the zoo to be free in the wild. Now, applying that three-part structure to the freedom that these false teachers are presenting, we would say that what they are promoting is the freedom of human beings from God's law, from the moral commandments of the Bible, from, we could even say, from the moral order that's built into humans themselves, freedom from all of that, to indulge whatever desires they might happen to have seeking satisfaction, however they might want to seek it. Look how First Peter, uh, sorry, Second Peter describes this in verse 18. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, we're in Second Peter 2, chapter, uh, verse 18. So Second Peter 2, verse 18, Peter says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, that would be new converts, people who are recently um, converted to Christianity, have just become interested in Christianity, and these false teachers are enticing them by sensual passions of the flesh. Now, it's interesting, though, what Peter says about the false teachers themselves, because the false teachers are motivated by this same type of... Um, interest in indulging sensual passions of the flesh, but they have a second motivation too. Look a couple verses higher at verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now we're talking about the false teachers still. They have, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So here they're, they are, they're inter they want to, you know, go along with this um, sensuality themselves. But then look at this. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So these teachers are expecting to get rich from preaching this message, which suggests that this message was likely to be very popular, to be very appealing at that time. Now, why would this type of message be so appealing? There's an obvious reason, which is that fallen human beings have all sorts of crazy desires, and they like to be told that God is perfectly fine with them indulging those desires in whatever ways they might like. But there's a second reason that's a little bit less obvious, and that has to do with something called the politics of respectability. The politics of respectability is a concept developed by a scholar named Evelyn Higginbotham, and she describes it like this. She says, the politics of respectability involve consciously setting aside 
and undermining cultural and moral practices that are thought to be disrespected by the wider society. So you're living within a society that holds certain practices, certain teachings, cultural, moral teachings to be in disrepute. And so you undermine those. You set those aside in order to make yourself respectable to the broader society. There's very good reason to think that the politics of respectability were one of the factors at work in making this doctrine that the false teachers were promoting so popular. And some of those reasons come from the letter 1 Peter, which I said these two letters are linked. So if you are in your Bibles, turn with me. I'll just read one verse from 1 Peter chapter 4. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3. Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you for not joining in. One of the primary points of tension between the faithful church and a broader pagan culture will always be on this issue of sensuality. And so there is a perennial threat in such societies for there to be teachers who arise to say, well, actually what the broader culture is saying about this stuff is fine, God's okay with it. Now, as I said, we are in a very similar cultural context today and there are, unsurprisingly, very similar false teachers. Sometimes that teaching is overt. And there's no shortage of pastors, Christian leaders who claim to represent the church, represent evangelicals, but evolve on every major moral and cultural issue right in step with the, with the broader culture. But sometimes, um, sometimes this, this, this false teaching is a little bit less overt, a little more subtle. Sometimes it doesn't involve sanctifying sin, it involves conniving at sin. Did you know you can connive at something? Usually think of conniving together, like plotting together, conspiring to do something. But the original definition of connive, I really like because it's very visual. Uh, the original definition of connive is to wink the eye at sin. So to, in other words, to, to wink the eye um, at some uh, immoral or criminal practice without confronting it or saying anything about it. And there's a, there's a picture that goes along with it. So imagine you are in a store and you see someone stealing something. Maybe they slip something into their pocket or into their, their bag or something like that. And they look at you and you make eye contact and you give them a little wink and then you go about your business. That's conniving at sin. And in my experience, there's an expectation from some people that Christians will connive at this kind of sin. I've seen this especially with young men who have come up to me over the years and talked to me about how they um, are looking at things on their phones or on their computers when no one else is around, things that they should not be looking at. And these young men have made it clear to me in the way that they've discussed it in the interactions that we've had that they've been expecting me to connive at their sin, that what they're looking for from me is something like, I'm so sorry that you're struggling with this, or I treat them as a, like, it's, it's a, a affliction that they're dealing with. I'm so sorry that you're struggling with this. Um, don't be too hard on yourself. You're forgiven. 
Uh, and this seems like there's this expectation that it's going to be an ongoing situation that they're just going to manage. So it's sort of like, you know, feel free to talk to me at any time. My door is open. Come back. Let's talk about this again. Um, but I mean, the reality is if you are spending time looking at these kinds of things on your phone, on your computer, whatever, your life is on fire. It is about to burn to the ground around you and you need to immediately confess what you've been doing to whoever in your life is most harmed by it. That's your wife, if you're married, it's your girlfriend, maybe it's, if you're living at home, it's your mother probably. You need to tell them immediately exactly what's been going on and be 100% certain that you will never, ever, ever do this kind of practice again. Now, I think that these young men were surprised to hear that kind of seriousness on this topic when they came to me about it because they had been hearing a gospel of cheap grace. Cheap grace is a gospel that disconnects being born again from the new life that's meant to follow from that. And so I think as we read 2 Peter, it's so important not to think, well, this is a nice thing to hear because I'm not struggling with these certain things or um, this is about the culture out there and not the church. I mean, Peter says that judgment begins in the church. So even if you're not going so far as to do what these young men were doing, how are we impacted by living in this culture that promotes this, this, this false freedom, right? How are we impacted by that? What are we watching on TV? What are we listening to? What are we thinking about? How are we looking at the people around us? This is the false freedom that these teachers were putting forward. The freedom from God to satisfy your desires in whatever way you want to. And it's an appealing freedom, not only because human beings are sinful, but also because of the politics of respectability. But I've been saying it's very seriously wrong. I haven't told you yet, though, what is wrong with it? And Peter tells us what's wrong with it. What is wrong? Why is this freedom false? What's the problem with this freedom? Because some things can be called freedom, but it's misleading to call them freedom. So for example, let's say we take that same polar bear out of the zoo and we set him free in the desert of Arizona. You can call that freedom, but what you've really condemned, what you've really done is condemn the polar bear to a life that isn't suited to his nature, that's going to make him sick and ultimately kill him. And so when we're thinking about freedom, we have to think about that three-part structure, the freedom of something, from something, to do or be something. We need that first piece, the freedom of something. What is the being that we're talking about being free? In other words, is the freedom being promoted healthy? And Peter says that the freedom that these false teachers are promoting is not healthy for human beings. Look at verse 19 where he talks about this. He says in verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Peter is describing the logic of idolatry. The logic of idolatry is an idea theologians have come up with to explain this concept, and it goes like this. You decide that you want freedom from God, 
freedom from his law because you'd like to call your own shots. You don't want to be told what to do. You're perfectly capable of deciding what's good and bad for you and good and bad for the people around you. So you want freedom from God. Now, that means then that you can't seek satisfaction in God. You have to seek satisfaction of your desires in the world around you, in the cre in created things. Now, the creation is great. The creation is beautiful. So that means that you can find some satisfaction in the things around you. However, it's always mixed with dissatisfaction because our hearts are always restless until they rest in God. Now, you can notice that dissatisfaction and you can turn back to God and find satisfaction in Him. But if you don't do that, what happens is you build a habit of looking for satisfaction in the things of the world that you've been pursuing. And that habit becomes stronger, like any habit does, the, more, the longer you are engaged in it. So, as you move deeper and deeper down this road of rebellion against God and idolatry, of seeking satisfaction that should be found in God in the things of the world, the dissatisfaction becomes more and more noticeable as the habit becomes stronger. So the logic of idolatry is very much like addiction, where you can be addicted to something and need more and more of it or more extreme forms of it at the same time that you may even recognize that it's making you miserable. But that doesn't mean you can break the addiction. Now, an example of this logic of idolatry at work is visible in our own society because we are pretty far down the road with this same freedom that the false teachers were promoting in 2 Peter. We've been walking down that road as a society, as a society at least since the moral, moral revolution of the 1960s. And what we're seeing today is really exactly what you would expect to see. We see more extreme activities, more desperate and emotional defenses of those activities, more hostility toward criticisms of those activities, and increasing misery. Now, that misery, we have a window into in a recent book that came out. This is a book by a professor of clinical psychology at a university in Belgium. And he's writing about the psychological state of people in industrialized countries, people who've been affected by this moral revolution that I've just been talking about. And he observes four widespread realities, four aspects to the way um, that we should understand or characterize the psychology of people in these industrialized nations. The first of those is loneliness, social isolation, a lack of social bonds. Now, it's easy to see why loneliness might be one thing that you get when you trade the Christian teaching on marriage, on sensuality, which is very heavily family-focused and very stable for open debauchery, indulgence of whatever desires you might have. And this loneliness is observable in media reports or um, political developments. So for example, a few years ago, the US Surgeon General talked about a loneliness epidemic. In Britain, they actually appointed a minister of loneliness and apparently 30% of people in industrialized countries report chronic, experience of chronic experiences of loneliness and isolation, and that percentage is increasing in recent years. So that loneliness, that first reality, according to this analysis in this author's book, flows into a second reality, which is lack of meaning in life. And it's easy to see that connection too, because um, 
We're such social creatures. Life is about relationships. So if you don't have the right kinds of relationships in place, it's easy to imagine why you would wonder if your life has meaning. Just to give one example of this, they did a study in 2019 in Britain, uh, and they asked 18 to 29-year-olds whether they felt like their lives had meaning or purpose. So 18 to 29-year-olds survey, do your lives have meaning and purpose? 89% said no. 89% of 18 to 29-year-olds in Britain in 2019 said their lives lacked meaning and purpose. So we're lonely, we're struggling with questions of meaning and purpose, and that leads to this third reality, which is free-floating anxiety. Free-floating anxiety and psychological unease. Free-floating anxiety is different from what's called image-bound anxiety. So image-bound anxiety is anxiety that's attached to a particular target. So maybe you have a fear of spiders or a fear of war or a fear of storms. And image-bound anxiety can be very debilitating, but at least there's a way that's obvious to deal with it, which is you avoid the thing you're afraid of or you come to terms with it. Free-floating anxiety is a little bit trickier to handle because there's no target to avoid. It's not exactly clear why or when you would be anxious, and so there's a continual threat of it turning into panic. Seems to be some evidence that free-floating anxiety is on the rise. Um, the World Health Organization says that one in five worldwide are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and that that's more prevalent in uh, wealthier nations, maybe especially in the United States, and seems to be increasing in recent decades. Another way to get a handle on this increase of anxiety is the enormous consumption of psychotropic drugs. So I mentioned this author's book I'm talking about. He uh, is a professor of clinical psychology in Belgium. And so he says in Belgium, there are 11 million inhabitants. And those 11 million inhabitants consume 300 million doses of antidepressants every year. We're lonely, we lack meaning, that makes us anxious, and that leads to the fourth reality, which is a whole lot of free-floating aggression and frustration. Apparently, it's been empirically established that there's a pretty strong connection between loneliness and irritability. And if you're lonely and you lack meaning and you're anxious, it makes sense that you would generally seek some target to take those feelings out on. You can see this a little bit in the sharp increase in threatening language in social media that's been observed over the past decade. So from 2015 to 2020, threatening language in social media tripled. And it's not like in 2015 everybody was leaving smiley faces. So all of this evidence is at least suggestive of the possibility that walking down this road of the kind of freedom that these false teachers are promoting is unhealthy for us, that it's contributing to the lack of health that's so observable around us. So freedom from God's command then, freedom from moral order, freedom from the way we are meant to live is destructive. If it's like putting a polar bear in the desert and calling that freedom, what freedom would be healthy for us? What freedom would be worth that lofty name, freedom? 
And again, we need to start with the of. What are human beings? We're talking about freedom of human beings. Well, what are we? So the Bible tells us that human beings are made in the image of God. And that means that we are meant to play a particular role in creation. We are kings and queens ruling under God in a priestly manner. We're meant to build the Garden Eden into the Garden City, New Jerusalem, that we see in Revelation descending from the clouds, where the river of the water of life flows down the central avenue. We're meant to take this cosmic temple that Genesis 1 so beautifully shows God constructing and prepare it for the full presence of God that right now can only be known in heaven so that God's God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we ourselves are meant to be temples of the Holy Spirit. People made in the image of God become fully like Christ, who is the image of God. Shining out glory and beauty and love to the creation around us. Now, we're fallen. We're sinful people. So that means that we still do rule. We still do build cities and civilizations. But we do it in an idolatrous way rather than a priestly way. And therefore, the freedom that we really need to flourish as the kinds of creatures we are is the freedom to obey God and carry out our purpose to ascend to this incredible destiny that's possible for us as creatures made in the image of God. That's the freedom we need, the freedom to obey God, which means we need freedom from whatever would hold us back from obeying God. And the primary obstacle to obeying God is sin. So the gospel is not just that you can be forgiven for your sin, but that you can be rescued from the habits of sin and the desire to sin. Not rescued perfectly in this world, but the cure can begin. That's why Peter talks in verse 20 about escaping the defilements of this world. Because there is freedom from the habits that are trapping you, that you see, that you hate, but that you can't break. There's freedom in Christ from those habits. And because the gospel allows that freedom, it's just so horrible to take people who've been only just introduced to that freedom and funnel them back into the trap of sensuality and the inexorable logic of idolatry. And that's why Peter gets so upset about the false teachers in this letter. Look at verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. In the mire. So the first obstacle to obedience to God is sin. Now there's a second obstacle that doesn't come up in this passage, but I want to mention it anyway because it helps us to see the world historical importance of this Christian idea of freedom that Peter is laying out for us in 2 Peter. And that second obstacle to obeying God is tyranny. This exact argument about the importance of allowing human beings the freedom to obey God is what led Christians to impose on the rest of the world the end of slavery. 
Slavery is an ancient and global institution. It goes far beyond the Americas. It's been practiced from time immemorial. And the reason that slavery comes to an end, not that there's no slavery at all, but there's a complete change in the way slavery is practiced around the world. It comes to a practically to an end in the early modern era is because Christians were motivated by this exact idea that people need to be free to obey God. And so they impose on these religions and cultures that don't value this idea of allowing each individual person the freedom to obey God. They impose on them the end of slavery at great cost and um, at the cost of lives, the cost of blood. The same argument about the freedom to obey God was pivotal pivotal to the American founders and led them to take so much care to limit the legitimate power of government because when the state has too much power, it so often interferes with people's prerogatives to obey God in accordance with Scripture. There may be some reason to be concerned about that again today. Limited government is required by the Christian idea of freedom that we see right here in 2 Peter. And it's important to remember that as our government continually spends more money, takes on more responsibilities, and regulates more spheres of life, including sometimes regulating those those spheres of life motivated by the type of false freedom that the teachers are talking about in 2 Peter that Peter's condemning. So the freedom worth the name is the freedom to become what we were created to be. Priestly, kings and queens, free to serve and obey God and to, in doing so, to carry out this incredible task that he's given us in his beautiful creation. And if that's true, what practical steps can we take to pursue that freedom? Well, the first one is obvious, and that is to live lives of holiness. How are we demonstrating by our actual lives, by the things we do day to day, that the stuff Peter was willing to give his life for matters to us too? That we understand ourselves to be servants of God, walking tabernacles of the Holy Spirit, spreading love and light and holiness. What do we need to do more of? What do we need to do less of? What do we need to stop doing? That's the most obvious practical thing that we need to do is focus on our holiness. But there's a second thing that I want to talk about, and that is that we need to be responsible for our own teaching because we all teach. We all teach. We all, by the things we say and the things we do not say, contribute to what people around us find believable, plausible, convincing, respectable, The power of the teaching, the casual teaching that we do day to day is brought home by this particular set of experiments that they did after World War II. A a guy named Solomon Ash performed these experiments. They're called the Ash Line Experiments, and some of you may have heard of them. Um, They're really interesting. We have a, a slide of what they did. Okay, so they brought people in, in groups of eight, and they gave these people that first card on the left and then they gave them a card on the right. And the test was simple. You had to say which one of the lines on the right was the same length as the target line, as the first one you were given, right? And anybody who isn't blind can tell you that it's C. Obviously, that's the one that's the same length. But there was a twist. 
the experiment was a setup. So it was groups of eight that would do the experiment at one time, but seven of those people were in on it. Seven of those people were paid by Solomon Ash and they were coached beforehand and told, okay, when you get in there, what you need to do is say that line B is the, long, is, is the one that's equal to the first one. So, and the, the actual test subject who doesn't know what's going on is the eighth person in line. So you get in there, seven other people before you and they go, they hand you the cards and you're like, okay, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't know what we're doing here. And then the seven people before you without blinking all go, B. B's the same length. It's B. Yeah, B is the, the one that's the same length. They're right in a row, without blinking. So what do you do when you're number eight? Only 25% of people said it was C. So they interviewed these people afterward. They were like, well, why did you say B? And some people said, well, I knew the right answer, but I didn't dare go against the group. And other people said, you know, at first I saw that it was C, but then I began to doubt my own judgment. And eventually I became convinced that the group judgment was true. We need to be that eighth person who's willing to say, well, obviously line C is the one that's the same length, line B is, is larger. Or, well, obviously promiscuity and debauchery are destructive and unhealthy for people. Or, well, obviously marriage is between a man and a woman. Or, well, obviously a woman is an adult female human, someone with two X chromosomes. We need to be aware of this false freedom being promoted in 2 Peter and also in our culture today and aware of the politics of respectability and the allure of that and say the truth anyway. Lord, you are glorious and great and worthy of all praise and service. Thank you for creating us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Forgive us for living as if you do not exist, for seeking to put ourselves on your throne, seeking to make the entire world revolve around our selfish and self-destructive desires. For the sake of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, free us to be what we ought to be, faithful servants and beloved children who imitate the holy love of our Lord and Heavenly Father. Amen.